Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everyone, to Liberty Talk Radio, America's libertarian voice, broadcasting from our studio in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to around the world. I'm your host, Joe Cristiano, and this is your antidote. Folks, it's time for us to take back control of our government now before this bureaucratic, oversized, and self-serving federal government starves us and our liberty. But to do this, we must shed conventional thinking regarding our political structure. We need to be revolutionaries in thought, dissidents in action, and only after we recognize what our government is doing to our freedom and our constitution will we start taking it back. And this program is just about and the history of libertarian ideas and then spell out what they mean in individualism and collectivism and law and economics. Yeah. You know, so, so many people consider being a libertarian as being a mean person, you know. And later on, I want to talk about a little bit about what's going on in Houston and government involvement. But I want to hold off on that just for a moment. You know, we, uh, the, the libertarian principle is, is, is very basic. If you truly study it and understand it, and once you understand it and you have that aha moment, your life changes forever. You know, now, if we, if we look at what's going on today, especially with a president like Donald Trump, you know, who at first I thought was sort of libertarian leaning and then went all the way to the left and then all the way to the right. And then in high school football, sit down, stand up, fight, fight, fight type thing. And I never know where this guy is going to land on any issue. This guy is not a conservative. He's not a liberal. He's not a libertarian. I have no idea what he is. Could you help me understand this guy? <laughs> well, I think if you assume that he'll always land on the authoritarian position, you'll be in pretty good shape. Yeah. I mean, we've noticed I, – I agree. He doesn't have any consistent philosophy. He doesn't have a coherent ideology, anything like that. But he likes dictators around the world, from Duterte in the Philippines to Sisi in Egypt to Putin. And in this country, what is his first pardon? Not some pot smoker, not somebody who ran afoul of a lemonade stand regulation. His first pardon is the guy who racially profiled immigrants uh, and arrested them because they looked Hispanic and then defied court order to stop doing that. That tells you his attitude toward – it's not even law and order. It's just order. He sees himself as the boss, and he thinks Putin is the boss, and Sisi is the boss, and he likes bosses. And you notice he doesn't like any of the Democratic elected officials. In the world. He doesn't like Merkel or May or Macron. I'm not a big fan of those people, but I like them better than dictators. Yeah. You know, and people don't understand the basics is that you know, when, when he was running for office – you know, I was pleased that he was elected because he was an unknown, at least. I said, I stand at least a 5% chance of him being a good president, you know. But with, the, with Hitlery, I'm sorry, Hillary, when she was, I figured there's a 100% chance this is not going to work. So I was sort of leaning towards, okay, the libertarian is not going to win. I'll take my second choice, and that'll be Donald Trump. 
But so many people say, but he's a businessman. You know, he can run a country. You know, he knows how to run things. And I keep on screaming at everyone and say, no, no, he's not our boss. He doesn't own me like he owns his company. We own him. He is there only to protect us from a Congress going awry and protect our freedom and our liberties from an abusive government, not to create a more abusive government. And I couldn't get that through to people. Well, I think that's right. It's, it's kind of a mistake to think that you want a businessman to be president because he should run the country like a business. As you say, the country is not a business. We don't all work for the government. We don't work for the president. And a business has one purpose. Mostly it is to make money, but it might be to make the best automobiles or the best radio programs or whatever, and that's your real focus. A country doesn't have that. A country is 300 million people with their own ideas and their own dreams and their own purposes, and all he's president of is the federal government, which should be a lot smaller than it is. So I could imagine if you had somebody like Mitt Romney, maybe you'd say, well, he'll come in and he'll, he'll reorganize and you know, he'll do the kinds of things a consultant does, and he'll get rid of the unnecessary programs. But all of that is still management. That's what you hire the director of OMB to do. The president has to have a vision. The government should do more to help people. The government should do less and let people help themselves. The government should send troops all over the world. The government should stop sending troops all over the world. And so a businessman doesn't necessarily have a vision like that. And I think that was a problem with Mitt Romney, that he didn't really have a vision of what government ought to do what he did say was, I'll be a good manager. So I'm all in favor of some president making Mitt Romney director of OMB and saying reorganize the federal government to make it more cost efficient. But I don't want him making the decision, and I certainly don't want Donald Trump making the decision, about what the government should do for us and to us. Yeah. You know, just this morning I was listening to the news and he appropriated, or and I'm not sure if it's been approved or he has the authority to do this, but, uh, and excuse me if my numbers are wrong, either $474 million or $747 million, you know, for additional troops in Afghanistan. And all this escapes me. We, we've exceeded the budget limit. We're broke, and now we're appropriating an additional the half a billion a billion dollars for Afghanistan. Uh, sometimes I really think I've lost my mind, and you know I'm on another planet, you know, observing a bunch of mad people on Earth running around like ants in an anthill. Well, the president cannot appropriate money. That much is still pretty much true. Um, he can rearrange money within the defense budget, so he can say, well, we're gonna we're gonna do less over here, and we're gonna move this money into Afghanistan. But, of course, the whole Afghanistan war is still based on an authorization to use military force that was passed in 2001. And nobody ever anticipated that if Congress authorized the president to put troops in a foreign combat zone, that that was an indefinite grant of power. So what a lot of us are saying here in Washington is if you want to put troops in Iraq, if you want to put troops in Afghanistan or anywhere else, you need to go back to Congress and ask for the authority to do that. And no president, not Bush, not Obama, not Trump, has done that in the past 16 years. Yeah. Well, you know, he, he criticized the Obama administration for the conflict in Syria. And then he got in. The first thing he did is 
bombed the heck out of Syria. And now we have, I understand, we have six bases in Syria. Has everyone lost their mind or am I on a different planet? Well, the problem here is that Congress doesn't, you know, James Madison said each branch of government would be jealous of its own rights and powers, and therefore they push against each other, and no one branch could get too powerful. But it turns out all Congress is really jealous of is its own effort to get reelected. And so what's the way to get reelected? Don't rock the boat. Don't make any moves that might backfire. So they don't tell the president to pull the troops out. They try to avoid telling the president to put troops in. They just let the president assume the power, which is in the Constitution. The Congress has the power to declare war. They have not declared war in Syria. They have not declared war in Libya. Um, They sort of authorized the use of force in Afghanistan and Iraq. But all of this, through three administrations, has been exceeding what the Constitution authorizes the president to do. Yeah, well, I have... Uh, friends, good people from Yemen that you know have been living here for many years now, still have families there. They said their entire town totally devastated. It looks like you know Berlin after World War II. Uh, there's not a building standing, and much of that is direct bombing by the United States. I I don't recall. Maybe I had a, a lapse of memory. I don't recall Yemen attacking the United States. Well, that's right, and that's one of the problems also. With this 2001 authorization for the use of military force, it was against the people who attacked us on 9-11. That seemed to me was legitimate. But we've expanded it to Iraq, to Yemen, all these things. None of that is legitimate. And, you know, we as a country do not want to go into the Middle East and fully occupy it the way the British Empire did. We don't want to be that kind of country. So we're in there, we're drawing fire, we're making people mad, we're making people angry enough to commit terrorist acts, but we're not trying to occupy the country, arrest everybody who opposes us, kill everybody who opposes us. Um, It's a crazy way to run a foreign policy. And you know what people are talking about right now? Children who were born on 9-11 are going to be joining the army and going to Afghanistan in a couple of years. Yep. Now, correct me, philosophically correct me, Um, North Korea. Here's my solution for North Korea. We pull out of South Korea 100%. We stay home and do what my mother says. My mother used to tell my father when he complained about the international situation. My father was always talking about the international situation. He was from the old country, you know. And she'd say, Victor, if people would only stay home, and mind their own business, the world would be a better place. My wife, my mother had probably no education at all, stayed at home, didn't even drive a car, didn't smoke a cigarette. All right? She just stayed home, cooked and cleaned. <laughs> She's old-fashioned, a really old-fashioned Italian lady, right? If, Victor, if they don't, people would only stay home and mind their own business, the world would be a better place. What better Secretary of State would you need other than my mother? Now, if, using that principle, if we withdrew the troops from South Korea, if we didn't bother them at all, we just isolated ourselves from Korea, then that would force the South Koreans to talk to North Koreans without an army of the United States behind them, without being, uh, uh, what do you call, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, without being, uh, uh, having a, a spear at the same time when they're talking. And at least they'd have to come to an understanding and possibly they would resolve their conflict. Am I just naive at this point? 
saying? Well, I don't know. I hope that that would work. Of course, we're not going to try it, so I hope something else will right, work. Right. Um, uh, but yes, in the first place, South Korea has 20 or 30 times the GNP of North Korea. So if they perceive a threat from North Korea, they can afford to create whatever army they need to uh, to protect themselves from North Korea. But if we didn't have troops all over the world, we wouldn't be involved in conflicts all over the world. Now, it may be that Kim Jong-un is really crazy and that he really is going to send a nuclear weapon somewhere. And maybe that's going to happen whatever we do. On the other hand, for the past 50, 60 years, what we've tried is having troops stationed in North Korea, in South Korea, on the border with North Korea. And that doesn't seem to be working very well. So letting the countries of Asia work this out, if there's anything that needs to be worked out, Japan, China, South Korea, why don't they work together, try to negotiate with North Korea, see what North Korea really wants other than showing off for the United States? Yeah, I mean, to me, just leave them alone. See it work out. No one's going to attack one another. And people talk about Korea as if it's Russia. North Korea is in square miles, two-thirds, two-thirds the size of the state of Oklahoma. And Oklahoma is not the biggest state in the union, obviously. It's, it's a moderate-sized state. It's two-thirds the size. And here we have the United States, you know, Alaska is bigger than, um, you know, three times the size of North Korea alone. And yet we, we treat them as if they're, you know, it's the old Soviet Union block against us. Um, who dreams this stuff up? I mean, I, I, I'm sure, is, is, it the, is it Fox News that loves war so much? Or is it MSNBC? Or is it mainstream media? I mean, who's, why don't we have people in mainstream thinking critically and in a, with a more libertarian and constitutional base? Why do we have to listen to the swill all day long, indoctrinating the population, and then when you suggest to someone that maybe we shouldn't go to war, you you sound like a uh, a wimp, like a, 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 you're sound you sound un-American, which is even worse. Well, I'm not sure that you do to most people. I think most Americans in places like Oklahoma and Indiana and Iowa don't see why we need to be at war around the world. And I think if you had had an articulate presidential candidate making that point, that he might have done very well. Trump occasionally did make that point. We're not going to do any more nation building, that sort of thing. And I think people did respond well to that, but right. of course he was never very coherent about making that argument. North Korea is sort of a holdover from the Cold War. We used to have 5,000, 10,000 nuclear weapons because the Soviet Union had that many, and maybe they had that many because we had that many. And then there was China, and North Korea is sort of a client state of China. And so this is all the free world versus communism. And now, of course, Russia has a different government, not the Communist Party. China still has the Communist Party, but it's kind of running a capitalist country. North Korea is the last vestige, maybe along with Cuba, of real communism in the world, but they do have a nuclear weapon. And we are worried, people on the West Coast are worried, are they crazy enough to send a nuclear weapon over here? Now, I think if we had gotten out of there 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we'd be in a completely different situation. One of the things the Kim regime has going for it is we are protecting you against the United States, the United States, the great Satan, the big enemy, our country standing up to the United States. So if we decided to come home and ignore North Korea, maybe they would stop 
getting any value in saying they're standing up to the United mm-hmm. States if people can see that the United States isn't anywhere around. Yeah. Yeah. Excuse me. We have a caller. What's the area code? All right. uh, area code 918. Caller, you're on the air. Your question or comment, please. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I, I would like to ask the okay. author, aside from the uh, current geopolitical climate and the, and the perspectives that you offer, I'm anxious to, to read your book, and I'm wondering if you, how you feel, if you have much hope for the future of libertarian values, the libertarian movement, and the libertarian party. Uh, how do you feel? What's your prognosis in the next few years or couple decades as far as it gaining traction and, and greater acceptance? Well, you know, unlike a lot of libertarians, unlike Joe's opening uh, remarks here, I'm actually fairly optimistic about the world because the fact is, and communism doesn't work, and socialism doesn't work, and fascism doesn't work, freedom does work. And so for the past 300 years or so, we have been moving in the direction all over the world of free markets and human rights and and self-direction of individuals. And there have been a lot of setbacks along the way, and we have this massive government entitlement state that nobody seems to be able to deal with. Nevertheless, I do believe that, as Thomas Jefferson said in his last letter, all eyes are opened or opening to the importance of individual rights. And I think you're seeing that to some extent in China, India has become much more prosperous than it used to be. Latin America, I believe the Chavismo uh, fever has passed, still going on in Venezuela. But in the rest of Latin America, they're getting the point again, this doesn't work. Um, So I'm fairly optimistic. Now you asked specifically about the libertarian movement. There's no question that the libertarian movement, the libertarian worldview in America is bigger than it was. When I was a kid, you know, it was a handful of people. I got my first job the libertarian movement because I was the only libertarian who knew how many members of Congress there were. Um, Now we have a lot of people contending for jobs like that, and we have a lot of jobs available. Around the world, the Atlas Network is helping institutes, libertarian institutes, develop all over the world, in the Arab world, the Muslim world, Latin America, China, Russia. All of that, I think, is a good thing. Now, we're also seeing right now a kind of resurgence of socialism, Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn. We're seeing a resurgence of fascism from Hungary to Russia to Marine Le Pen in France. Um, We're now seeing a resurgence of protectionism in the United States. So there are a lot of things to keep on fighting, but all of those ideas don't work, and people will, I think, figure that out. So if you ask me what's my prognosis for the next five years, Trump's going to be president, then somebody's going to beat Trump, not so good. But for the, past, for the next 25 years, I think that uh, things will improve. Well, I, I like your optimistic outlook and enjoy your, uh, your uh, uh, interview with Joe. I'll, I'll, I'll hang up and listen to the rest of it and look forward to reading your book. Thank you very much. Thank you for calling Liberty Talk Radio. Well, yeah, let's, let's get back to your book before we're getting him. By the way, uh, when you mentioned Bernie Sanders, I was going to ask you about that because here's a guy who is, is uh, catering especially to college students, and college students think that, you know, a, a, so many of them appear to be uh, believers in the government should supply a, 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 a minimum income whether you work or not, all these other crazy ideas, 
and they seem to applaud it. And, and these are college students. You think, what happened to the critical thinking to these people? Well, I'm not sure they get very much economics in a lot of their college classes. And you know what people say? When you're a college student, you've never paid taxes, much less met a payroll. So people say, <laughs> let's give everybody a house. Let's give everybody an education. That sounds great. And especially if you're the guy who's getting the free education, it sounds like a great idea. When people start looking for a job and having to pay taxes, then I think they're more willing to listen to the point about economics, that there are a lot of trade-offs. Nothing is free. Everything has to be paid for. But yes, they sure do seem at this point ignorant of economics. And for those of us who are trying to talk to college students in college, even in high school, um, but, the, but the lure of isn't it nice to give people free stuff is very compelling. You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I've grown so far towards a libertarian perspective. I, 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 it's so difficult for me to say anything but it but the libertarian perspective on, on about everything that we do, which means that, you know, people should be free to do what they want, provided that they don't infringe upon the equal rights of others. Very simple concept. And even the situation now in, uh, in Houston, uh, I mean, the east of the, uh, the Houston area, where Hurricane Harvey, you know, we all know what's happening there. And, and, and Trump gets on his bandwagon, all the, he's going to be sending assistance and everything. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, we had a hurricane wipe out all of Joplin, Missouri. And then that's very close to here. I mean, I get there in about an hour and 10 minutes. And I, I've been through there after, the, after the, the, uh, the, the tornado hit. I mean, nothing was there. When FEMA came in, the city of Joplin said, get out. They wouldn't allow them in. And within a year, that whole place was rebuilt. And they knew if him came in, it would be years with people living in tent cities and whatever. They didn't want any federal assistance whatsoever. But assistant, assistance poured in from all over. Now, with Houston, I personally contributed through a tra- charity that is donating its money now to, to the people in Houston. I voluntarily did so. And I'll bet a million people, a million other people did the same thing. And I have people in the studio that just put their heads on this. Yeah, I did too. You know, I, I see by the federal government getting into the situation in Houston, making the matter even worse. They should get out. But when I say that to many people, I say, oh, you're so cold-hearted. You know, the federal government should be there for everyone. I said, well, if that's the case, if, if a sewer line breaks in your neighborhood and your street gets flooded, you better have the U.S. government come in and fix it right away. What's your, what's your stance on that? Well, right now... It's a devastating picture, and all of us look at this, and our hearts go out to these people who are trying to live in homes that have been destroyed, uh, not knowing what they'll find when they go back to their home. It's a terrible situation. And so right now is probably not the time for people to listen to a sober discussion of what did the National Flood Insurance Program have to do with this? What did FEMA saying we'll take care of everything have to do with Houston maybe not being as well prepared as it should have been? But what we've seen already is lots of individuals, people with boats, people with all-wheel drive, people with mattress stores that they let people come and stay in. We're seeing a lot of spontaneous individual response. We're seeing Walmart and Home Depot and other companies being prepared, um, helping people there. FEMA 
this is not the time, it seems to me, to be going out and arguing keep FEMA out of Houston because it is going to sound heartless. Right. After, after this is over, then we should try to have that discussion. What good is national flood insurance? What good is FEMA? Isn't it better if you let the local community and the state handle these problems and the private sector? Uh, but, but I don't want to be making the argument right now in the face of this because it's hard for people to hear that argument right now. No, I, I agree. Um, um, in fact, even um, I, I think it's Budweiser beer, right? Budweiser Sally. Miller, uh, Bud, Miller, Miller. Miller and Bud, what they're doing is they're converting their beer factories to water factories and shipping water out. It, they weren't, you know. Uh, uh, dictated by by anyone to do so, they did it voluntarily. I think everyone's everyone's hearts go out, and I don't mean to be cruel. In fact, I the the problem is I see what happened in uh, we experienced what happened in New Orleans when FEMA came in, and they're still not rebuilt. I mean, year ten years now, and the place is still a mess. But it just seems that when the government gets involved, they don't really help. They make things. Yes, it's certainly true. The federal government adds layers of centralization, layers of bureaucracy, and it also is subject to political decision-making. You know, there are all sorts of academic studies saying that presidents issue more disaster uh, announcements when they're running for re-election than they do once the election is over. Right. What does that tell you? It's a political game. Yeah. So why not leave it in the local level where people can see what the problems are and deal with it themselves? But as I say, right now, I know nobody wants to hear that. I know. And don't get me wrong. In, in the event that they need army helicopters to lift people up, you know, bring the helicopters in. I'm, I'm not saying, you know, but it, okay, well, I, I think we're on the same page on that. I'm just so frustrated with, the, with our government and, the, and everything it does, it seems that everything seems to be wrong. But let's talk a little bit more about your book, <laughs> The okay. Libertarian Mind. Here's my problem. It seems that there, there is a community of people who have not lost their ability to think critically. And people don't really understand what that means. I mean, think critically. Uh, Trump is not a person who thinks critically. He thinks one side of the ledger. He either thinks liability or he thinks um, asset, either left side or right side. He doesn't know there's both sides of the story. And so he is not a critical thinker. He's just, he just reacts based on his instinct that he's usually wrong. But um, it seems that the, this is needed in every school to get people to start thinking. I, my biggest frustration is that Americans can't think. They'll say, but, Amer- but, but Houston, uh, uh, Trump will make America great again. It doesn't answer the question. I mean, they, they stop thinking. Do you find that, or is, am I in this isolated community of non-thinkers? Well, the interesting thing is most people can think pretty well when it comes to their own lives and things they have control over. So you may think you have a neighbor who can't think very well at all, but I'll bet he can decide what kind of car best serves his needs. Correct. And if he and, and he's and he's able to pick a wife and find and find a job and look for a better job, all the things that he can actually control, he can devote critical thinking to. It's the things where critical thinking isn't going to really help you that much. You know, you could spend all year studying Hillary and Donald Trump, and you'd still realize there's something wrong with each of them, and maybe you'd, you'd like one of part of one and part of another, but you can't have that. So this is what economists call rational ignorance about politics. What's the point of studying up? If I need to buy a new computer, I do some studying, and then I buy the one that fits my needs. 
if I need to get a new politician, I can do all the studying in the world, but I still only get one vote out of 100 million. So what's the point? That's the reason I think that people don't need, they don't need to think carefully about politics and economics. And so it's much easier just to be emotional. Hey, I think he's tough. He'll take care of those guys. Or let's give people something for free because, well, that'd be nice. People, people need a house. Let's give them a house. It doesn't pay to learn to think rationally. But it's also true that the principles of economics are kind of counterintuitive. How can you understand that it would hurt poor people to raise the minimum wage? You do have to be able to think several steps ahead. If you raise the minimum wage, will everybody get a raise? No. Some people will lose their jobs because they're not worth $15 an hour. Their labor is not worth $15 an hour to McDonald's, and so McDonald's will go out and get robots to take your order or kiosks or whatever. But you do have to be able to think several steps that way, and that is challenging for the whole economic argument. Okay. Well, why don't we take a look at your book and, and just tell us something. Uh, give us a summary of the content of your book and, and why you intended to uh, what the uh, why you updated it, if you will. Well, the the, the point of the book is to introduce libertarian ideas, and so I have a chapter on where libertarian ideas came from, going all the way back to the Bible and the ancient Greeks and the ancient Chinese, and then I have a chapter on what are our rights, and then what is individualism, what is pluralism, how does the market process work. So I'm just trying to guide people through thinking about the philosophy of freedom, because that's what libertarianism is. It's just the philosophy of freedom. I should be free to run my life the way I want to. You run your life the way you want to, so long as we don't interfere with each other's equal rights. And let's explore what that is. And I tried to write it in a way that's simple enough for people like me to understand it. And so this is not an economics book. This is not a philosophy book. Anybody who can read a newspaper can read this book. But I know you have a pretty knowledgeable audience, so I want to say to your audience, it's not just an introduction. I learned a lot writing this book, and I think most libertarians will learn from reading this book, even if they believe they already know libertarianism pretty well. Now, when someone asks you, define libertarianism, what is, what, what is your general response well, the first line of the book is libertarianism is the philosophy of freedom. So that's the easiest way to put it. Another way to say it is libertarianism is the idea that adult individuals have the right and the responsibility to make the important decisions about their own lives. And every word there is sort of important. It's about adults. We don't expect children to be able to make all the important decisions about their lives. It's about individuals, not to make collective decisions for everybody else, but each of us to decide for ourselves. We have the right. I should be able to decide what I want to smoke, where I want to send my kids to school, all those kinds of things. I also have the responsibility to make those decisions. I should decide how I want my children educated. It's my responsibility as a parent to do that. And when you have the responsibility, then you take the consequences for your actions. So if I make bad decisions, if I smoke the wrong thing and get in trouble, well, then I pay the consequences for that to make the important decisions about our lives. So not just the little decisions, like what movie to go to, but the important ones, like what kind of career can I go into and how will I raise my children and 
libertarians say the government currently takes a lot of those freedoms away from us. It tells us what we can smoke and what we can drink and sometimes what we can read and used to tell us who we can marry and who we can't marry, although that's changed a little. Um, and it tells us how we have to spend our money, how we have to save for retirement, how we have to give to charity, all those kinds of things. 25% of jobs in the United States, you need a government license to decide to go into. So you may think that you want to become a hairdresser, but you're going to have to get a government license before you can do it. All of these things libertarians would like to leave to the individual. Yeah. If, if I said, if I made the statement that if, if we legalized, not legalized, allowed people to take whatever drug they wanted, I mean, remember, legalized it for an individual to, to take whatever drugs they want, you know, the problems we have with Mexico would eventually dissolve. What is your response to that? Well, there's a lot of truth to that. Mexico has a dangerous drug gang problem because drugs are illegal, and so only people who, who, as economists say, have a comparative advantage in violence get into the business. Is there a lot of violence associated with the trade in alcohol? No. Alcohol is sold in normal stores by normal people under normal legal processes. And if you sell me bad alcohol, I can sue you. Um, if you, uh, if you shoot me so you can take my corner and sell alcohol there, then you're going to go to jail. Whereas if you're in the illegal drug business, only gangs, only criminals can be involved in that business. And then you get a lot of crime associated with it. So yes, if we legalize drugs in this country, then I think Mexico would move toward a regime of legalization too. And they could quietly produce the drugs Americans want to buy. You know, it, it's strange. Portugal uh, legalized drugs. Drug use actually went down. Rehabilitation is way up. And, and, the, and, the, and the country is much better for it. I mean, we can't take, take, take that as a, 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 a model to follow rather than follow. Why do we continue to do the same thing that never works, no matter what it is? Well, that's a good question. It's, and, it, and it is an area where it's hard to get people to think critically. A lot of people know someone who's gotten messed up on drugs. Interestingly, most families know somebody who's gotten messed up on alcohol. And yet you don't hear very many people calling for a return to alcohol prohibition. We tried that. We decided alcohol is dangerous, but prohibition is worse. Why can't we say that about marijuana? Why can't we say that about cocaine? They did try it in Portugal. It seems to be working well. It's not working perfectly. Neither is our system. Why aren't we looking at that? Politicians have a vested interest in being tough on drugs. They don't think their constituents are ready to hear this. Uh, so they don't talk about it. And partly that's because politicians are not leaders. In a lot of ways, they're followers. Until the public wants a change, they're not going to do it. I will say, particularly in states where they have the initiative process, we are finally moving to ease the marijuana laws. Right, finally, yeah. And, and maybe that'll be that first stepping stone when we find out that when, when it's legalized, you know, the communities are not going to fall, fall apart. Families right. are not going to fall apart. And, It'll take a lot of the mystique out of it, you know. So, anyway, uh, 
David, I, I want I want I want to thank you so much for being on our show today. I thoroughly enjoyed. It. I thank you so much. It's been a long time. I, we haven't had you on the show before. I don't know what happened. How come we haven't had you? It's all your fault, Sally. No, you know that. I wasn't here. Oh, you were here. here. That's right. <laughs> okay, but I I do hope you will accept our invitation to return at a later date. Maybe give us an update of what's going on. Thank you. All right, but I will warn you. I will warn you in that I will send you a coffee cup in the mail with my beautiful, charming face on it so you don't forget who I am. I How look about forward that? to it. Okay. Thank you so much for being on Liberty Talk Radio. Appreciate it. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Bye. Folks, this is the end of today's broadcast. We'd like to thank our sponsors for the financial support, and we'd like to thank you for listening in. You can further the cause of liberty by recommending this program to your friends and let us hear from you. Our email address is comments at libertytalkradio.com. Remember, as my wife would say, you're either allowing your liberty to be taken away or you're striving to protect them. Unfortunately, there is no middle ground. Until next time, this is Joe Cristiano. You've been listening to Liberty Talk Radio. Stay well. Stay tuned.